Welcome to This Conscious Life with Emina and Paul Rushton. In this modern world, where we're relentlessly plugged in, yet increasingly disconnected, perpetually doing, yet so rarely just being, processing overwhelming amounts of information, yet still searching for the truth, it's time to come up for air. Here, within this community, we share stories, rituals and recipes for a beautifully humble but plentiful life, and we intersperse these with the pilgrimages we take to visit those who have taught us profoundly powerful things about humankind. By sharing our stories, we deepen our connections and remind ourselves of all that unites rather than divides us. From holistic wisdom to slow, sustainable lifestyles, spiritual nourishment to conscious parenting, this is your weekly Conscious Living Guide, here to inspire and illuminate, connect and nurture, just as nature intended. Today's episode is with Emma Cannon. She is an acupuncturist. She specialises in traditional Chinese medicine. And I've known her for years. We met, our paths just kept crossing actually, and we met um, recently and got talking. And she said something which really stayed with me. She said, I'm really just a keeper of women's stories. And when she said that, something in my heart vibrated and I just felt that it was so resonant. And she's spent so many, she spent tens of thousands of hours in clinic with women who come to her because they are struggling to conceive or they have a hormonal imbalance, there are problems with fertility or there's a history that's um, really inflicting imbalance and and pain and trauma and difficulties and she helps them unpick their stories and really gets to the heart of what's going on inside and what's going on beneath and in this episode I really wanted her to share honestly some of those stories, her own story, which is a really formative one and obviously took her to where she is now. What I love most about Emma, and if you follow her on social media, you'll know she's incredibly honest. And with many of the women I've met, if they have had painful experiences in their past and they've come through with real strength and real resilience, there's a real sense of not wanting to pretend of eschewing the the BS and just not wanting to play the game. You know, I've earned my stripes, I've earned these war wounds and I'm going to talk from a place of truth. And that's an incredibly important part of what this podcast was always meant to be about, that I would take these little pilgrimages to meet people who do incredible work and who guide us back to the truth of of humankind and in Emma's case it's her stories of womankind and mother-daughter relationships that have taught so many other women so much and I'm absolutely delighted to share her words and her wisdom with you all today. I'm here with Emma Cannon, I'm sat in her beautiful space in the heart of London, it feels like being in another world and we are just going to have a really honest conversation about womanhood and our rhythms, our cycles, the lives that we live and how we can push ourselves that bit too hard. I met Emma a few years ago. Yeah, in a lift. In a lift. Yeah. And you came, I think you came to um, my first book launch as well. I did. We didn't, we yeah. didn't really get to talk properly. Yeah. So it was sort of, we kind of kept crossing paths, but we're very aware of each other, I think, energetically. Um, And I've just always been really fascinated with with the work that you do and how things feel like they're really opening up and the the conversations you're having just seem just 
that bit more raw, that bit more honest, that bit more open. Yeah, um, well, it's much easier now to have those conversations. It was it was harder in the early days mm. because there was so little awareness. Did yeah. you used to? Well, did you feel a kind of that force of, of stigma when you started doing what you did? And what was your journey into the work that you do? Well, like most of these journeys, it, it started with a personal journey. So my uh, father had died when I was 16, and um, which is a terrible, it's always a hard time to lose a father, but it was a terrible time to lose a father. Oh, absolutely. And sort of a year later, I sort of came to London and started partying hard and, <laughs> and playing hard. And, um, and I kept getting sick. Um, I, I was never, I, I always, I found that I wasn't, as robust I wasn't able to drink all night long and stay up all night like some people seem and to do. And this was when you were in your teens? Um sorry 17, 18 okay. um and um I didn't I don't know I was just a little bit more sensitive I, I've always been very aware of of other people's needs and other people's emotions always um and I, I think probably was a bit of a a fixer and a an amender and a, a to begin with was that your family dynamic as well possibly I'm one of five girls okay so you know there's always been someone with a period or a broken heart <laughs> in my family um, but my father was very traditional but very he was a general in the army but he was a very kind and compassionate man and he was definitely a thought leader you know even in the 70s he used to sort of tuck me up in bed and say Every day in every way, it's getting better and better. Oh, yeah, so he was really, um, he was a very compassionate man and, and adored by the soldiers who, he, you know, I think he led with his heart. Mm. So I think he was very unusual even now, but for that time, I think he was even more unusual. It really sounds like. Yeah, so when he died, there was a mass outpouring from, from people about what a, an amazing, beautiful man he was. So in a way, I had him always in my heart, but also to live up to in a way as well. Um, so when I first came to London, I, yeah, I think I, I just was very lost, really. I hadn't really grieved, didn't know how to grieve. Did you have connections grief. in the city? Who did you, who did you I, find yourself with? I came up to London and I did a secretarial course. And I was <laughs> one of the last, I think we were the last people to do it on typewriters. So it was a complete <laughs> and utter waste of time. <laughs> I'm the most useless secretary and I, I barely ever used it. It wasn't your path. No, it definitely wasn't my path. And, um, it, uh, yeah, it was kind of useless, but, but I did get in with a sort of quite a fun party crowd. It was after, uh, band aid and then we did youth aid. And so I was in with, I was hanging out with some creative people, but also quite party people as well. Mm. And, um, and yeah, I think I was just, I, I was, I would get ill every autumn with this terrible chest infection, mm. which, I now know, and as you know, it would be connected to the grief Grief, and also the time of year, which was autumn, which is when your lungs are most susceptible and it's that time of year of grief. Mm. Anyway, long story short, I did um, eventually find acupuncture and went to see an acupuncturist and she said to me, looked at my tongue, felt my pulse and she said, have you had a great grief in your life? And I said, yes, I have, you know, how did you know? And she said, I can see like the cracks on your tongue and I can feel from your pulse. Anyway, she put the needles in and listeners, this is very rare. This, this hardly ever happens, but typical, it just happened to me. She put the needles in the grief point and I passed out cold. Oh my God. I literally left my body, passed out cold. Um, and she took the needles out and was sort of like, I really don't know whether acupuncture is for you. And I sort of went away thinking, on the contrary, that was incredible. Yeah. I, With a I, seismic yes. reaction. And I totally, it totally shifted something deep inside me. And for the weeks uh, following that acupuncture session, I would find myself in a supermarket, for example, with tears just rolling down oh, my face, but not in that, Ah, sobbing kind just of way, relief. just full of acceptance and beauty and grace. I mean, it was incredible. So then I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> that's, a, that's the first acupuncture experience to live up to. I know, it? I know, exactly. So I was like, this is incredible. How come this ancient system of healing can can access that that child inside of me that didn't know how to grieve? Makes me even want to cry now, actually. Yeah, really so, um, yeah, it's just so, and I'm so grateful for that experience because it kind of showed me 
how connected our physical symptoms and our emotions are and Mm -hmm. how damaging it is for us to suppress them. Was that the first time you really started to consider that link? Had you, you know, as you grew up, was there sort of a holistic approach or was there a way, did you sort of see the physical stuff as very separate to the emotional stuff? It wasn't a natural? Um, Not necessarily. I think there is a good, a good witch energy in my family because there's so many women my my father's family was from Cornwall they always his mother they always say you know my grandmother used always used alternative medicines although my mother and my father were very traditional so that generation were the ones that sort of skipped you know all of that stuff and rejected it but my grandmother was would always seek alternative and she would you know she'd make perfume out of roses from the garden and she'd make something to make you feel better for your sore throat so the so it was there yeah but not in your not particularly in the forefront because of course the other side of it was we were in the army and you had to be have loads of injections and inoculations and you know what I mean so the, course, other, the other side yeah. of it was very traditional there was a real dichotomy there wasn't a there? real mixture um and and actually that's really helped me because I think it's helped me take complementary therapies into the mainstream because I have both Mm. I have that sort of understanding of service and army and and on what's acceptable and you know protocol and all of that kind of thing Mm. um but I also have the sort of more free spirit holistic wild side to me and I think the combination has been really helpful so how did you how did you reconcile these parts of your life? You were in London, you were incredibly young. You had this treatment and you obviously felt something incredibly powerful following it. Did you did you immediately know that was the path you wanted to follow? You wanted to continue, you wanted to learn, you wanted to be able to pass that sort of power and experience onto other women. How long did it take for you to wake up to that? Um, I think it was a few things coming together, like everything, click, 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 mm. everything lined up. It, it was, yes, that was the, uh, that instigated the change in me. And after that, I, I kind of never really fully went back because then I started reading about it. I was really fascinated. Um, I, at the time I was working for an oil company, we got, I got made redundant. I was given severance pay, you know, redundancy. I then went to San Francisco so I went to San Francisco and I arrived in San Francisco the day the Gulf War broke out. Oh, my Yeah, and it, it was such an interesting time to arrive there because they were all sort of out on the streets playing guitar and and, and Beatles songs and saying, oh, man, it's like Vietnam all over again. So it was, this, it was this incredibly interesting time to arrive there. And, of course, San Francisco is full of all the really authentic healers who, who started this the whole revolution in the 60s. In the 60s, of course, they could never have achieved what they set out to achieve because they were, they had no one's, they weren't on the shoulders of anyone. You know, they were they were the true pioneers. Mm. But all of us lot who have come and wellness and everything, we've, we've been on the shoulders of giants. So, but in San Francisco at that time, they they were all kind of coming out and and um, what drew you there what took you there what took me there um a boy (laughs) (laughs) yeah a boy (laughs) um so um and he was a real free spirit my boyfriend at the time and so we went we went out there for several months and while I was there I thought oh I'll look into all of the healing stuff that's going on here because in London at the time everyone was wearing shoulder pads and just into money and it was the it was the late 80s 80s, early 90s yeah so and so I went to San Francisco and it opened my eyes to the fact that food could impact your health hey <laughs> even then people didn't oh yeah <laughs> I mean no this was yeah, crazy so I and and they were looking into algae which I then subsequently imported and sold to boots that's a whole other story <laughs> I didn't know that <laughs> yeah um so chlorella so I was the first person to import it oh, and actually chlorella could answer a lot of our problems now as could spirulina because it's a really good source of protein and and it's plant-based so that's true yeah. it's environment you know it has so, very small environmental impact but I was like 20 years too early with that one (laughs) literally that was going to be a pattern yeah so 20 years too early on that one and I was like oh oh, green tablets anyway so um so I was in San Francisco and I was going to these amazing lectures and 
And the people who started um, Hoffman, all of those guys, mm. and when it started, it was really raw and aggressive and really like they took you down. <laughs> like it was very, all, all of that stuff was going on. Wow. So I kind of came back just saying, this is my path. This is the first time in my life I have ever felt like something aligned to me, to my heart, to how I see the world. I, I had felt like a fish out of water at school. I, I didn't... I wasn't great at school and it turns out I'm not I'm not stupid but at school I thought I was you know such narrow metrics yeah yeah so um so that was incredible and I'm I think I'm quite a focused person so when I focus on something I probably have the mind of a specialist because when I focus on something I can give all my attention to it Mm. you know um at um at the expense of everything else, probably. So I really went to town on on it, even though I was like a fish out of water in London. I mean, you know. Who did you find in London? Where did you where I, did you study? Um, I did an amazing aromatherapy course with um, a guy called Gabriel Moje, mm. um, which was beautiful. So I learned all about all the the plants and the and the essential oils and I and he taught it from a Chinese medicine point of view so that really helped How me interesting yeah so it was like this tonic this is a yang tonic and stuff like that so I still look at those notes today they're utterly beautiful his notes um and then after that I did shiatsu um which was also lovely I did it in Covent Garden and it's a beautiful room up there um and um and then I I um did ear acupuncture with one of my first teachers John Tyndall who I'm still really good friends with um I did loads of stuff with him over the years and he is really pioneering and really radical and and very generous with it you know mm. and very relaxed with it you know a very relaxed style and I think that just gave me a really a deep confidence with it and I was really lucky to learn with lots of really good teachers and some of the originators and stuff I mean the ones that had obviously done it even before me you know before me so they were the yeah so they were the they were the real authentics you know and they weren't. They weren't doing it for money. No one was making any money from wellness in those yeah. things. But I don't even think there was a word for wellness. It was seen as a calling, wasn't it? It was yeah. something that you just, you know, it was your, it was your purpose, and it almost seemed churlish to to assign a monetary value to it. And that's that's another big shift that I think we're seeing with yeah. with you know the millennials and the shifts. But we, you talked very briefly about understanding at that point after that first treatment the importance of not suppressing what we experience of our hardest rawest you know most brutal kind of moments and emotions how how does that story repeat itself how does that play out for you in the work that you do you know we've talked we've had conversation in the past about Emma as this real kind of guardian and keeper of women's stories do you do you see these themes that repeat themselves with women these kind of universal stories and themes and gosh yeah I mean yeah I mean oh so many send so many layers through so many generations often mm-hmm. um and I think it's one of the I mean I love the initial consultation with someone when I when I sit down and I listen to their story and and so much information can be gleaned from simple simple questions like you know tell me about your menstrual history you know when did it start what happened or or tell me about your mother I mean yeah. that question <laughs> that question can can bring you so much and um so many stories about uh, suppression of emotion um but also i mean god the, the, when i when i look back there are stories that have come to me at a, a certain time it would almost be like a philosophical question that i'm asking myself will manifest itself as a patient in the waiting room or, okay. or 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 a story that someone that tells me that will change my view on things forever mm. um and and sometimes during the course of being a practitioner there's those alchemic moments when those things happen um and it's it's pure magic for, for me and for them you know um and and often I'm learning so much from from my patient but some of the themes I mean there was a one woman who always sticks in my mind because 
her grandmother had committed suicide and she'd committed suicide probably a year after she had she'd given birth to her her daughter so this this woman's mother um and there had always been a huge stigma in the family mm. and after this patient of mine so after her this patient of mine gave birth she um developed thyroid problems and deep depression okay and through the unraveling of that and the investigation of the fact that she had thyroid problems and how that had affected her emotions and then then her going back and talking to her mum and asking her mum about how she was after her, her first child was born, they were able to come to this understanding that probably that's what happened to the grandmother, yeah, but yeah. it was never diagnosed. Yeah, so instead of this woman who had been con- had gone down as being insane and you know, deranged oh, God, and, you know. It's, just, it's crushing. Yeah. And, but it was so healing for her to, mm. for her and the family to realise that. Um, and then to, you know, and that's why medicine's so amazing and mm. diagnosis and, and medicine can be, can be so amazing is it's, um, it totally turned that story around. Yeah. Um, and there's a million stories. I mean, there's a story that, a story about this, um, a woman who was one of seven girls um, Spanish, very strict, Catholic. Um, the, the she was the youngest, but the sister before her had got pregnant at seventeen. Mm. So the father, who was very strict, used to demand after that that every month that the youngest one showed him her menstrual bleed. Oh my goodness! Yeah, gracious. yeah. So then um, she and she came to me with severe period pains and problems oh, and gosh, things like yeah. that. No, no, so no much fear and shame. Yes, and so so she so what happened was she was started began to show, but she felt so shamed and all of that, and then her period stopped, and he went into flew into a rage, but her her period stopped out of fear. Yes, her body and, was shutting down. Yeah, so she knew that she hadn't had sex, but she thought that maybe there was a monster that lived inside of her oh, that had poor, impregnated poor her. Child. Can you imagine? I mean. Oh my goodness gracious, she found so, her way to you. So she found her way to me and after years of painful periods, um, we were able to unravel it. But but I think, you know, for her also making the connection with the story. And had she not? No, I don't think she had really. That's extraordinary. So it was sort of by me sort of asking her and giving her the space to tell the story. Isn't it extraordinary that so many women push that part of themselves away you know it's this huge inconvenience it's this thing they want to just skip altogether by you know chemically deciding to you know stay on a pill or take some sort of you know contraception that means you don't ever really need to bleed you know or you have a fake false forced bleed Mm. and you just assume that that part of what your body does every month is is nothing more than an inconvenience. It's something you need to just kind of get past and then get back on with your life. And it's what you know. It's I know we all we both have daughters, and I certainly lived a part of my life feeling that way. You know, I played lots of sports competitively, and would always hope that you know I wouldn't wouldn't get my period on a day when we had like the county championships or something I think god yeah. you have to wear double knickers and all that sort yeah, of stuff yeah, yeah. and just think because no one no one was there to equip me with an understanding of you know what this was what this signified yeah and you know this is this is why I wonder what you know and I know culturally it's not it's not really been we've not been tellers of those stories you know in the west it's something that we just you know shove a tampon in (laughs) get on with your life you know and sort of you know the adverts with like the the blue ink that used to make me love what i think why is it blue Ah, that's so true we have to remove ourselves even that step even red ink would be a step too far we have to remove ourselves has to be blue ink (laughs) i've never even thought of that yeah it's true so when women come to you and you know they're ostensibly coming to you for a treatment for acupuncture but the layers and the familial and the ancestral stories and the the, Mm. the weights and all of those influences that have built up how do you unpick those you know where do you even start yeah um well first of all we're taught and i well i i mean i've been practicing for 25 years i have over fifty thousand hours of clinical experience so 
which is, That's extraordinary. is an extraordinary amount of time. So I think that I read a person, you know, sub- I'm always taking in information. Mm. If you put me in front of a computer, I'm completely rubbish, by the way. <laughs> well, but, it's not our natural, not but, our natural state. No, but with people, you know, I've really overly developed the skill to be able to read and to find the way in. Um, and it isn't only my skill, it's the skills of Chinese medicine that I put together and also from years of listening. So, I mean, you simply put, you have to listen with your ears, but you also have to listen with your heart. Mm. Um, and you have to be able to feel in and you look for the signs, you know. Um, and Chinese medicine gives me so much. I mean, the, the diagnosis in Chinese medicine is exquisite. And even though I've done many other trainings and I do many other things, I always come back. And it's similar to the Ayurvedic, uh, which I know is your love. And, you know, I'm, I don't get into one or the other. I think it's the same. It's the same. Yeah, it's, I believe you know. it's, it's the same it's route. Same it's the yeah. truth. And, um, and it, yes, exactly. If you understand energy, you understand so much. And when you've worked with energy for 25 years, that's my currency. That's how, you know, I see where things are out of balance. I hear where things are out of balance. I smell where things are out of balance. Mm. You know, my whole existence is about trying to maintain this equilibrium. Um, so, so it's second nature to me, really. Um, and, you know, sometimes people don't tell you the story. It just comes out. Usually it actually comes, the best bits come out at the last minute. Oh, by the way, yes. <laughs> I'll just tell you this nugget. Yeah. Um, and it's the incidental information, often, yeah. isn't it? It's not the stuff that you share explicitly. It's the stuff that's implied underneath. Yeah, exactly. So it's listening with your ears and it's listening with your heart. It's also touching. We take the pulse. We look at the tongue. Sometimes when I take, I look at the tongue, suddenly something will come to me. And I I think that we're all intuitive. It's just we've forgotten how to be intuitive. Yeah. And because of because so much of my job means that I am lucky enough to to wallow in intuition. <laughs> um but that's my that's how I that's how I read people really. Mm. Um and and sometimes it is a bit disconcerting because sometimes you can ask a question that it's quite affronting because it will just come to me and I'll ask and it will really go to the heart of what's going on. And that's really the point. And we talked about it before early on is that, you know, you've got to find, you've got to find the roots. So much of medicine just looks at the branches. So it cuts the branch off. Oh, that branch is dead. Let's get rid of that. You know, but it doesn't go to the root and unpick the root system. And, and that's the most important thing. I mean, how, how can we ever address our despair if we don't understand where our despair comes from? Yeah. Um, so it's that. It's about understanding human nature. It's about listening, looking. I mean, it just, it really, it it saddens me really deeply because I know that so many people will never get to the point where they will be able to to get deep enough to unpick the root and understand where things came from and I'm wondering if it might be helpful for people listening to sort of talk about some of the some of the signs that the body might throw up in terms of what we're suppressing. So we know that we know that in traditional Chinese medicine, grief would root itself in the lungs, yeah, and would really start to feel, you know, feel problems and imbalances there. What, what else do you see with the women who come into you? What are the things that get missed so often when people are very depleted or when they're very closed off? How how is the body trying to show them? Yeah, it can manifest in lots of different ways. I guess one of the things I see typically in fertility is obsession. Right. So okay. obsession is huge. So it's it's almost like nothing else exists except for this desire to have a baby. Mm. Um, and sometimes it's really important to to look back and see what what are what's driving that. You know, what is driving the obsession? Of course. I know people want a baby, but there's there's a dysfunction in that as well. So it's like all all other thoughts are eclipsed yeah. and it's just this yeah. one focus, which obviously is very stressing on the system and yeah. and very sort of shuts us down, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and so that and that can come from fear. Yeah. Um or it can come from um 
a need, trying to fulfill a need within ourselves about um, perhaps um, nourishment, I think. Um, I, I always say a lot, if you want to nourish another, you have to learn to nourish yourself. And I did a whole campaign around Mother's Day about being a mother to yourself yeah and so when there's that obsession thing that always comes under earth for me in Chinese medicine Mm -hmm. because obsession is driven by a need for love and a need for nurture often okay um and it it sort of and it can manifest in that very overthinking ruminating kind of a way sure it's like I can't remember what it is Ayurvedic but um Vata, where, yeah, we're, Vata. where we're not rooted where we're sort of up and yeah so uh, so the remedy for that for me is to teach that woman how to nourish herself now the this idea of nourishment at the moment in this world of wellness and Instagram has gone a little bit crazy mm. um and I I've seen it go from the no acknowledgement that food does anything to this idea that we can fix everything with a bit of turmeric. You know? yeah. <laughs> um, and I think probably somewhere in the middle lies the truth. Yes. And, and I think, sorry to the doctors and to the scientists, but I think that the, the, the slowness for medicine to get on board with the role that, that food has to play has allowed a lot of this uh, proliferation of people who with, with no clinical experience or no, you know, to, to you know, to, to be making huge claims about food. And that's obviously that's really dangerous and we need to get somewhere in the middle. Yeah. So there's a lot of people that come to me now that are obsessed with food and they come and they want to have a, a diet or they, you know, they think that their diet is going to be the root. Okay, but, but, so it's not good enough and that's the source of their problems. Yeah, so that, so and they then they've they've placed an enormous amount of control on what they eat Mm. but they've done that because they feel so out of control everywhere else and so they've placed too much importance on food now of course food is it's a building blocks for good health we both of us agree with that but the role for food can and is being overstated but Mm. in some quarters and certainly the way you approach it you know the minute it becomes about control then all you're doing is inviting more stress into your life and that's something that will you know yeah so some of the women who who think that they have the healthiest diet have the unhealthiest relationship with food yes so so that's one thing obsession and and that can come from a lack of uh, of real nourishment early in life so perhaps there was a dysfunction with the relationship between the mother daughter mm. perhaps the mother was never properly nurtured by her mother and so that can can have a knock on effect um and and different things manifest in different ways and i think if something keeps repeating itself in your life you've really got to start to take steps to look at where it comes from (laughs) you know so there's a lot of uh, again at the moment and i it's the equivalent of just eating you know healthy food and it's the sort of the, the affirmation things if i say you know, every day and every way I'm getting better and better enough times or, you know, uh, uh, the, this positive thing you want in your life. If, if I say it enough times, I will, it will work. And if it doesn't, there's something wrong with me sort of thing. Yeah. No, that's not how it works. You've got to look at the reasons behind why it's not working. So if you're constantly having bad relationships with women in your life, it, just saying over and over again, you know, I, I wish to have healthy relationships with women, unless you get to the, the root cause of that, mm. you're never going to, you're never going to unpick it. So, so you do have to go back and unravel. And we do have to look at these dark, ugly, uh, uh, you know, sides of ourselves that maybe, you know, the bitch, the jealous person, the saboteur, yeah, all the shadow know, stuff, all of the shadow stuff. Yeah, um, and we we have to look at that and integrate that as well. You know, people come to me and they say, "I'm not an angry person," and I'm like, "Well, dream on." You know, why not? Yeah, you know, anger at, at some point is really appropriate. The suppression <laughs> of anger is not. You know, it's such an interesting because anger is so divisive, and yeah. people who are naturally completely non-confrontational yeah. find it incredibly hard to even speak up for themselves when they've had their yeah. boundaries breached find anger so incredibly violating yeah you know and i you know when I, when I go I go yeah. I mean you know I've, I've got Carly blood in me that's yeah, my kind of yeah, family yeah. family name and you know <laughs> I can get very very fiery very yeah. volcanic and it's 
it's making peace with it, I think, you know, but you don't want to damage and destroy people, other people in the no, process. No, I mean, the problem with anger is being angry with the right person at the right time at the right level. <laughs> but, <laughs> Which isn't always the case. That's not, you know, that is, that, that's, you know, but to, to be appropriate, to, to express appropriate anger, mm. you know, that it's just like any other. That's like saying, oh, you shouldn't express happiness in a way. Yes, we don't, we find anger difficult and I'm yeah. not suggesting that every, you know that everyone goes around screaming at each other it's not it's not that <laughs> we attribute values don't we to our emotions but they're just you know they all come from the same roots it's just they're different exactly. expressions of one part of us exactly so all of those things you know so anger I suppressed anger I see a lot of I see a lot of obsession I see a, a hell of a lot of fear um mm. and actually in in my world in terms of fertility fear is the enemy of fertility. Yeah. Because we see it in birth as well, don't we? Yeah. You get really scared, your body constricts yeah, and closes down. Definitely. And I and I really feel from a fertility point of view that we would have been designed to conceive when we felt safe, primarily. Mm. You know, that there were going to be enough calories available. We weren't going to be eaten by a tiger and that we were going to have a mate around to support us for the critical year after we give birth. Yeah. And if if there's any doubt over any of those things, it could be could have a partner that's a gambler you know that's yeah you know and so there's a future seems uncertain or you could have had a father that that was a gambler and lost all the family money or you know all of those millions of different scenarios Mm. that there could be and these are all protective mechanisms they are they are yeah and sometimes it's really interesting to to ask people and I don't always do it because you know I might get a punch but (laughs) sometimes it's really interesting to ask people you know, what are the reasons you don't want a baby? Because actually they're sometimes more interesting than the, mm. I really want a baby, I really want a baby. Do you really want a baby? You know, sometimes when you actually dig deep, they think, well, I might lose my relationship with my husband. Mm. You know, I had a terrible mother myself. I'm really, I have doubts about how I'm going to be able to mother. And if you're being really rational about it, there are so many reasons why you may not want a baby because your life will never be the same again. You hand so much of yourself over. Yeah. when you become a mother and it's it is frightening you know we do we see it all of the time outside of you know uh of um stopping ourselves from being successful for example you know yeah not wanting to sabotage yeah, yeah not wanting to shine our light into the world not you know not wanting to step above anyone else you, you, know. have, you hear so many of those stories with the women you know in ayurveda we talk about the throat chakra as being a real source of, of trouble for women because you know, the idea that you would stand up and use your voice and, you know, speak, speak your truth, speak from your heart. Yeah. It's a terrifying prospect. You, know, you can be pulled down by so many people. So many people can, can want to, you know, want to shame you and want to attack you for speaking. And we have that knitted into the roots of, 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 of our ancestry as well. You know, yeah. so many, so many, just huge swathes of history where we didn't have a voice we weren't allowed to have a voice so how do we how do we inhabit that and yeah and actually that's been a huge part of my journey because of course when I started in in this field particularly in fertility no no one was doing no one was talking about this stuff emotions in connection with fertility Mm -hmm. nobody or even food, really. Which is crazy. Which is absolutely crazy. So I was, I constantly had to show up and be brave. And and, and actually, I I chose to walk into the lion's den because I chose to work with medicine. Mm. And, and I tell you, there was a really pivotal turning point for me in, in terms of that because I always thought, oh, medicine, you know, they all agree with each other. They just don't agree with me. And I... But still, when women were coming to see me, I was writing letters to doctors and I was saying, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to, you know, she's got a very stressful situation at work. I feel I've given her strategies for dealing with that and we're going to give her some acupuncture. And, you know, and I just thought, I don't care if they don't want to know. I'm going to tell them Mm. um, what I'm doing in a non-threatening way. And I'm going to leave the door open for them to 
contact me if they want to. And um, so I did this for years, wrote, just wrote, wrote letters to, to consultants and doctors. And it was a one-way street. Was well, it was, but I got ch- chinks of, uh, there were chinks of things that happened. Okay. And then what happened is I, I did this, this course, it was called the Management of Infertile Couples, and it was at the Royal College of Robson Guineas. And it was kind of little old me in a bunch of <laughs> suits. <laughs> um, anyway, it was fascinated and it, fascinating. It completely opened my eyes because what I realised is none of them agree with each other okay. on anything. You see, so science has set itself up as the truth. Mm. And it says, here, here I am, here is my truth stall, come get your, your truth <laughs> from me. <laughs> Everything else is a lie. But actually, science, by the very nature of what it is, is constantly evolving. So what it says is right to, today, yes. it may prove wrong tomorrow. And so I thought, well, if that's the case, then there's room for me. Yeah. So at these conferences, they were saying, oh, yes, well, smoking, you know, smoking is terrible for, you know, the lining of the uterus. I thought, brilliant. They're not doing anything to help those women that aren't smoking. I can help those women who are, you know, who are who are smoking. I can help them stop, yes. you know. Uh, they'd say something else. Well, there's nothing that we can do for thickening the lining of a uterus. Brilliant. Acupuncture is fantastic at that. Yes. There's my there's my chance. There's my opportunity. I write to them saying, I've had really good results in, you know, working on the lining of the uterus. Mm. Honestly, chipping away oh like that for years. But now it is. <laughs> it is It is widely recommended. Yeah, it is. Just so traditional medicine has, has reached a hand over after seeing the research and the studies and the evidence it needed. Yeah. And also from the scans, I mean, what was really great for me was when I first started working with Western medicine is a patient would come to me and they'd be in the middle of IVF and they'd say, my lining really isn't thickening. Is there anything you can do? And I'd say, yeah, well, let's do this treatment. Come in today, come in the day after tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And then they'd go and have a scan and the consultant would be like, well, that's amazing. You're, you're you know, it's, it's thick enough. And yes. they would say, oh, well, I've done acupuncture. And I would get the feedback from my work because I'd have the scan, which yes. in normal practice you don't normally have. So actually, although it was an incredibly frustrating, lots of knocking on doors, mm. it has been a very rewarding way to work because when you when you turn the heads of somebody who's really entrenched in that medicine yes. and you show them what your work can do, that's amazing. Yeah. To the point of undeniability, yeah. and they can just see it for themselves. Yeah, we touched earlier on on mothers and daughters mm. and the links, and with with the menstrual cycle, with periods, with with you know hormonal health. And you know, I've had those personal experiences myself of really not having any clue what my mother's menstrual history would have been. Mm. My aunts finding out that there was polycystic ovary syndrome, like there was endometriosis, all of these things that actually all we have, all that was ever spoken was she has bad periods or she has heavy periods or she struggles a bit or mm. you know, she's at her time of the month she, you know, it's a bit of a bit of a battle. Mm. But no language was ever assigned, no understanding of what was actually going on. Mm. How how damaging is that? Because I have daughters, they're still young. I want to be able to equip them with everything they need to know without scaring them. I want to be able to welcome them into what their body will do. I want to be able to tell those stories and share my own. And I've had touch with very positive experiences physically. How do you... How do you go about making peace with 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 painful stories that that, that have been handed down? And well, I first of all, I mean, you touched on it, and we're both writers, so language language is so important. The the words that we attach to things, you know, if if you come in and say, "Oh, I had such a horrific period." You know, okay, you might have a bad period. Probably isn't horrific. I I would say the word horrific to, you know, villages being wiped out or do you know what I mean? It's like how we use words and and the drama and and the intensity that we attach to things is really significant. So when I talk about my body and when I talk about my periods and when I talk, I talk about it in a really kind and gentle way. Okay. Um, so the language that I use around my body is really positive. And if you look at medicine, it is absolutely peppered with negative derogatory um, language around women. Like hysterectomy, for instance, yes. comes from removing the hysteria. 
you know. <laughs> Gosh, I never, yeah, yeah, I never made that connection. So it's, it's so this, so the language, negative language around, mm. and well, I mean, it's and it's really interesting to me actually what's happening at the moment because the cancer community are trying to drop this my fight with cancer, you right, know, yeah. because they find it really unhelpful because in a fight, someone wins, someone loses. Yes. It, you know, if you didn't fight, if you didn't, if you don't win the battle, you didn't fight hard enough. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Yes. language. But what's really interesting me at the moment is the fertility community have decided that they want to pick it up. Now, what? Why would they do that? So my it's, fertility battle. It's, like it's, it's sort of based in victimhood, you know. It, and it's not That's healthy. Really so I don't use any of that kind of language around periods, around cancer, around, you know. And, and actually, I gave a talk to some women the other day, and I said, how many of you are struggling to conceive? The whole room put their hands You know, I, how many of you identify with struggling to conceive? The whole room put their hands up. And I said, okay, well, let's just put this another way. What if I said that you were evolving to conceive? And that all the things that you're learning along the way are raising your vibration, raising the vibration of the children that we're going to bring to earth. You're going to learn skills like kindness, patience, you know, all of the, you know, yes. you're going to learn to nourish yourself properly, eat properly, rest Move properly. It from the final destination. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, so I think we, you know, so I think that's a really, language is really important. Mm. Make your words impeccable, you, you know, you know, before. The Four Graces or whatever that book is called, lovely book. Anyway, so so using language in a really respectful way. Yes. And just being very careful with what words you attribute to things. Um, and I think the medical profession could really get to have a lesson or two in how they use language because I think they can be quite careless with their words. Well, it's also terrifying how many women are misdiagnosed from yeah. common conditions. There's a really big endometriosis campaign recently. Yeah. The vast majority of women presenting with almost identical symptoms and being given, you know, twenty or different diagnoses, yeah. and just not understanding that this is a medical condition and that you know that it's it's debilitating. Yeah, well, and and the problem with that is because so much money and resources that go into treatment these days, and so our the treat the, the diagnosis has advanced in some respects. But actually, most doctors and physicians are losing the skill of taking a decent history and hearing the story. Yeah. You know, that if I see a Western medicine practitioner these days and they take a good history, it's unusual. Yeah? And the ones that, that I work with and collaborate with are people that take a good history and don't just rely on blood tests because mm. blood tests are like looking through one window of a house at dusk and deciding you need to renovate the whole house based on that one room, you know. Yeah. They don't give us a picture of everything. So, you you know, what what is the root of the, the despair and the suffering? Like mm. I said before, unless we understand the root of the despair and the suffering, how can we ever really remedy it? So with people who come to you who have not, have not ever really been raised to talk openly about this part of their lives, about everything, anything to do with the uterus, to do with the wound, so fertility, mm. menstruation, pain, sexual intercourse, anything that relates us to this part of our body, which we, you know, for the most part in the West, it's, you know, we just, we really don't go there. Yeah. I know, well, I find that extraordinary. I mean, that is a bit, because I spend all day talking about it. So I know that that's true. But I, and I guess they come in here and it's so natural for me to talk about that, that I'll talk about it in the same way I talk about having a cup of tea, really. Yeah. You know, and, and, and all the details of their menstrual cycle. So, you know, I think when, when people start thinking about having a baby, they just think about ovulation. Mm. But I, but they come to me and I say, okay, so how long is your period? How, what color is the blood? Of, you know, same in Ayurveda. Yeah. You learn so much because yeah. it you know relates to every every <laughs> single sub tissue and every single sub. Yeah, and we say that you can tell everything about a woman's health from her menstrual her menstruation, really. So so. It, but no one teaches us this. No, ever. no. Um, I mean, I think I was lucky because I grew up in a house full of women. My mother didn't teach me, although my mother did say that we five girls were the greatest achievement of her life. So I always had a positive yes. um, feeling about birth and, and 
then having babies and it wasn't something that I thought was not valued um and um and and that's really important I want to come back to that actually but my sister it was my sisters that taught me about periods okay where did where are you in the line second youngest okay so my my older sisters used to sort of dress me in little beaver dresses and take me down to the swimming pool and show me off in front of the my curly curly hair and big eyes and um I think and then dumped me while they kiss their boyfriend <laughs> anyway my sisters taught me most things um and um and they definitely taught me about periods going back to this idea of value I think one of the best things my mother did teach me actually was the value of having children and the value of family and there's a lot of talk at the moment that we should be teaching um fertility in school we should be you know teaching us more that we learn about fertility in school. My daughters learned about IVF. They learn about, you know, we learn about fertility in school. Mm. It's not just about learning about it. It's about the value that we place on it. You could learn about stuff. It doesn't mean that you place any value on it. You can, we learned about drugs at school. It didn't mean that no one took them. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's simple education. Yes, it's part of it. But it's not as if we it's not as if we weren't taught, you know, biology. Yes, we're not taught the ins and outs of our menstrual cycle. Is that something to, for the school to teach you? Maybe, but I also think it's something that women should hand down, woman to woman yes. to woman. Um, and I've made damn sure that my children know exactly what how precious their periods are. And actually, we've just developed. I've just developed it because I've, I've developed a whole load of online programs because a lot of people that go to my website couldn't ever come and see me. And the one that I've done for sort of 20-year-olds is called, instead it's called Becoming Fertile. Okay. And so I talk about the periods as becoming fertile. So from the minute it happens, you know what that means. Yes. That means you are now fertile. Mm. You know, and I think even people, that's people don't really understand. No. Or it might, they might understand it in a derogatory, right now you've got to be really careful because now you can get pregnant, you know, yes. negativity, ne- negativity. Fear. But not in abuse, you know, that that idea of becoming, you know. Yeah. yeah. And it's all, in the programme, it's all, it's aimed at, you know, women in their 20s. So I talk about their bodies, but I also talk about their emotions and I talk about spirituality and I talk about their relationship with other women and how important those are that they, you know. So it's it's very, very layered. Mm. And I, I think I'm, so, I'm very proud of it because it really is my heart work that. It sounds really beautiful. Yeah. yeah. How can we help our younger children how can we help girls from I have a nine-year-old and a, and a six-year-old and very open at home obviously when I'm when I'm bleeding it's not something I hide you know the bathroom door's always open it's that way in our in our home and the girls ask questions yeah and you realize that it's not something that is really it's not something they have language for necessarily but there's there's this root of knowing that, yeah you know they understand that this is something that the female body does in time and I think they they understand that that will that that's really natural and there's yeah. no fear around it um that's perfect well it's perfect just carry on like that and mm. when they have questions ask their answer their questions call things by their real names you know so they they understand their anatomy I think that's really important that's another really divisive thing isn't mm. it you know because we have you know there are mothers who were just from from day one you know vagina penis just mm. say everything as it is and there are others who find mm. that quite confronting and mm. quite um it's hard to it's hard to I mean I don't think it's anything wrong with having a nickname you know a nickname for it as long as you understand that there's another there's a proper name for it as well I mean I don't you know I don't think there's anything wrong with you know being playful around it I think to be playful is fine as long as there's facts in there as well and as long as there's not hidden shame and things like that if 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 the nicknames come because there's shame around it then I think that's wrong but Mm. it's it's like anything it's like the intention isn't it yeah so you know and the word should feel good to you yeah so so I think it's fine to you know to to be light around it but it's I think it's the intention behind it and if it's covering shame and guilt no that's not good Mm. if it's just make if it's just being playful that's fine yeah you know I think it doesn't always need to be completely serious no you don't have to be completely graphic and I think it's 
Oh God, I mean, we're, we're quite funny in our family. So we're, my, we're very, we are very open. And my, my daughter the other day had to go and get some, some canison for obvious reasons. That was <laughs> my daughter. And it's the first time she's had to do it. And I do make them go and do these things themselves. Mm. I'm not, definitely not a helicopter mum. And I just think it's really important for them to own it engaging not for someone to make it all happen and go away from yes. them so so um so she said so what do I do and I said we well, just go and say could I have some canister and I <laughs> and I <laughs> and she said okay um do I I'll not have to tell them what it's for and I said no baby don't have to tell them what it's for it's me and my older daughter we were, we're, not, we're, we were giggling and she said can you write me a script so I said yeah I can write you a script oh, but you don't have to write. and I said look darling if you were going to if you were going to, have to buy some condoms, you wouldn't go in and say, hello, I'm about to have sex. Could I have some condoms, please? <laughs> or you wouldn't go in and say, if you're about to come in your periods, hello, I'm about to have my menstrual bleed. Could I have some sanitary towels? <laughs> So she she thought she'd have to pass some sort of yes. test. To yes, get it. exactly. So we we all had a good laugh about it because it yeah. was funny, you know. And these things can be funny, but I didn't hide them from the truth, and I didn't make her feel shameful about yes. it. I made her feel like it it can it's it's just part of life. It can yeah. be funny. It can and be everything annoying. Everything can happen naturally to yeah. our bodies, you know, because of balance imbalance. The whole the spectrum is part of us. And yeah. It's not something you should delegate off to somebody else either. Yeah. And then I said, so, so, so what, and what I said, do you, you know, what, what else, you know, do you think you could do? And she said, I think I've probably been eating too much sugar, mum. Yeah. Okay, good. You've been eating too much sugar. So that really, you know, so she makes the connections. So she starts to have ownership over her body. Yeah. And um, that there's a cause and effect. If you want to have an itchy fanny, <laughs> carry on eating the sugar, you know, and it's true. And then she's able to see that and she, you know, so, so that's the only way people learn. Yeah. You know, by giving them ownership, by making them powerful, by... And making the mistakes yeah. in the first place. Yeah, and you don't have to be heavy about it. You can be... It can be fun. It doesn't have to be... We have fun in my family about things like that. <laughs> I bet you do. <laughs> she's so funny because she's so literal about everything. It's really like... <laughs> I know, she said, write, write me a script. I know. It's so sweet. <laughs> I think my eldest is like that too. Yeah. My eldest doesn't... She wants to be very clear. Clear yeah. about everything before she goes into a situation. Yeah. You know, this way and that that place and that person. And, yeah. and it really helps her. Yeah. Yeah. So and, and they're all different. And that's the other thing is, you, uh, you know, the way you, you are with one child is different to how you are with another child. So the, the the my little one has always told me everything. She's always been completely upfront. Whereas my older one, it would be like, well, what happened? It wasn't me. It was someone else. Someone slipped something in my drink. I feel like I'm looking in a mirror. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exact same dynamic with yeah. my children. Yeah, where Violet is like, I remember the first time she she got drunk. She said, "Well, so what did you drink, darling?" Well. I had three gin and tonics, which I held my nose and I drank them. Oh. And I was just like, okay, that's probably enough information now. <laughs> I get the picture. We've all been there. Yeah, exactly. The first time I got drunk was met my entire Turkish family in a Turkish restaurant afterwards and I fell off the chair. I was completely squiffy. I just, I'd gone out with friends before oh, no. and then picked me up and I just, I, yeah, it was, um, <laughs> there was nowhere to hide. We have definitely all been drunk. Yeah, I think that as women, there's there's probably one thing I think we need to try and get back for ourselves is time. Mm. Um, I think the erosion of time on women's health has been catastrophic. And, and we had a lovely conversation before we started filming. And I um, and you said about how, you know, you're you're much more in flow these days. And I and I just got this lovely image of you sort of floating around. And and but that is the nature of women. You know, we're not machines. You know, we're, we're not we we weren't designed to just churn out. You know, be productive. That you know, in that very. Um, rigid kind of way and I think the rigidity on our life is mm. impacting on our health and our emotions because I do think we're meant to be in flow I think we are supposed to wake up some mornings and just say what do I want to do today yeah. you know what does my heart desire what's my heart telling me you know how can you be a cyclical being expected yeah. to live a completely linear life you know, know you'll work these hours for these set days and have these num this number of days holiday off a year and yeah 
this yeah. number of days sick pay and I mean goodness no, well I've never been able to that's why I do my own thing and we were talking I was saying that you know my diary is you know because you see patients in that way but to be honest my work is flow anyway for yes. me so it, it's not it's not like I'm going and to do something that no. I don't love and that isn't a complete extension of who I well, am that's what you've created that's what's evolved yeah. and it is the sweet spot where everything is everything comes from the same source you know yeah. all, whether you're treating whether you're speaking whether you're traveling you know all of it the impetus for all of it is the same yeah yeah definitely and I and I think so time and purpose you know I think to find purpose is such an important thing um, and it hasn't. It doesn't matter what has happened to me in my life, and I've had some extremely difficult experiences. And um, but to have purpose yeah. is, is so is such an important human drive, you know. And I'm not sure playing a mortgage and working nine to five is is purpose. And uh, not everybody is lucky enough to to be able to to find their purpose and do it. But I think you can find it in small ways, even mm. if it isn't your job. I think that you can create a life for yourself where that that's where you you put your energy. You know, we waste so much time on Netflix and addiction, and you know. Whereas actually, if we if we try and align to our purpose, even if it's not a life's work. Yeah, I think it can bring great happiness and it can really help us with a lot of the sort of human suffering that we have. A beautiful place to end our conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Pleasure. Thank you. To listen to more episodes, subscribe at iTunes. And to learn more about living a more conscious life, visit us at thisconsciouslife.co. Thank you for listening.